Today I'd like to talk about this one of was one of my favorite aspects of the Dhamma, the teaching of the Lord Buddha. This is the Mahapurisa Vitaka. The eight reflections or um, thoughts that arise in a great being or arise in someone who is practicing to better themselves to develop themselves so as we practice the Dhamma this is something that we realize and something that we realize about the teaching of the Buddha specifically we realize that this teaching in one sense it's not for everybody but we can say that everyone will benefit from the practice of the Buddha's teaching there are always more people who will not accept and not appreciate the meditation practice and this is with of course with everything with everything in the world there are always some people who like it and some people who don't like it some people like swimming some people don't some people like golf some people don't some people like <coughs> this food or that food other people don't that's with everything but, but the thing about the Buddha's teaching that one realizes as one practices one realizes that there are eight, altogether eight realizations which um, they sort of came up with. How it happened was one of the Lord Buddha's students, Anuruddha, when he was practicing alone, he had these seven considerations come up in his mind. And the first one is that this teaching, realization that this teaching is not for everybody, but what is, what is sort of amazing about it is, uh, or how wonderful it is, one of the wonderful things about it is that it's only those people who are content with little, uh, sorry, who have a few wants, can really and truly appreciate the teaching. So it's sort of an appreciation of the of the Buddha's teaching that it's uh, only people who are who are in a good way can appreciate it, can come to understand and practice it. Those people who want a lot of things, then yeah, truly you can say that these people will not appreciate the Buddha's teaching because it's about letting go and giving up. These people will not be able to keep even the simplest moral precepts, let alone be able to develop concentration and wisdom. And the more we talk about letting go and giving up and you know, sitting still, <coughs> the more turned off they become. This talk about suffering, how these things are not going to make you happy, and so on. This is something which is very unpleasant to them 
undesirable to these to most people really because we have many wants and many addictions in this sense so our addictions lead it, lead us to disdain the idea that giving these things up might somehow be a good thing so Anuruddha realized this and this was one of his, his sort of a deep realization that came to him something that sort of helped him to realize what was going to get him through this practice this was before Anuruddha was enlightened he was still practicing to become enlightened so as he was practicing the teaching just as we're all practicing here he realized that he was going to have to let go of a lot of his wants you know, wanting for beautiful things or as they, the, the, the texts say wanting to appreciate other people to appreciate him wanting other people to admire him for his special attainments this is the first realization that came to him the second realization is this is a very similar one it's that uh, not not only can we have do we need to have few wants we also have to be content and this means content with the things that we have so and the texts say about one who, who appreciates the Buddha's teaching if they get whatever clothing they get you know, as monks whatever robes they get and when they get rag robes they wear the rag robes feeling just as comfortable as any ordinary person with all of these wardrobe full of clothes whatever alms food they get when they mix it up in the bowl and they don't know normally it's uh, some good food some is very very coarse food but they eat it feeling just as comfortable as someone who had the best selection of the most nutritious healthiest delicious food <clears throat> when they whatever dwelling they have when they sit at the root of the tree you know, monks are supposed to are meant to strive to live at the foot of a tree for as long as life shall last so we always to forever we're to always strive to go out into the forest into the root of the tree when we live at the root of the tree uh, when we when we reflect in this way when we're content when we don't have wishes and wants and desires and needs we're just as comfortable in fact of course much more comfortable than most people living in these wonderful luxurious houses um, you know, with where the wind can't get at them, the flies can't get at them, the heat, the cold, and so on. But here, living under the tree, where all of these things can get at the the, the monk, because of contentment, because of their ability to uh, withstand good things and bad things without becoming attached or repulsed by these things, they feel much more comfortable than those people who are. Uh, oppressed by greed and anger and uh, delusion even living amongst the greatest of luxury and of course whatever whatever bedding when the monks they were sleeping on grass or so on and for all of us of course this, for the meditators this is the same when we live, come here many things are obviously not as wonderful or, or perfect as we we would have otherwise uh, expected in the outside world but we find that we're actually much more comfortable, whereas before we may, may have thought we could never sleep on the floor, or we could never do with you know just eating once a day or twice a day, or just eating you know, not not being able to choose which food we get and so on. This is the second thing he thought of. The third thing he realized was that this 
this teaching is only for those people who are content with seclusion. It's not for those people who are, who are fond of society. And this is one very important aspect of the Buddha's teaching. <clears throat> is that the only way you can really expect to progress in, in, in the meditation practice is if you're able to seclude yourself externally. At least in the beginning, exclude yourself externally. Of course, the, um, the higher levels, the more it's more much more important to exclude yourself internally, where uh, no matter what comes, you're able to stay secluded from defilements, from liking and disliking. But in the very beginning, before we're able to do this, it's it's of the greatest importance that we don't talk with other people, chat with other people sit around with other people, you know, go here, go there with other people. Some people are unable to be alone. They have to, even when they meditate, they have to meditate together. And this is endemic of many meditation groups or, or practitioners, is that when, when they're in a group, they can practice wonderfully, but when you put them alone, they, they feel they're completely unconcentrated, unable to focus, unhappy, and so on. <coughs> they like this... Uh, connection with other people. And this, of course, this leads to you know, the interaction and the receiving of other people's uh, conditions. So when they're upset, you get upset. When they're distracted, you become distracted and so on. And at least in the beginning, when, when we're all beginner practi practitioners and we have all these you know, bad, un unwholesome mind states, we, we have to separate ourselves, just like a patient who, who is uh, contagious, has a contagious disease. They shouldn't go around other patients with other contagious diseases. You, know, you share your diseases. Once we've practiced and we've gone on to higher stages, then it becomes less of an issue. But in the very beginning, it's, it's something which is most important. And it's the reason why many people are forced to leave, or they come out of it saying they didn't get anything. Some people even say meditation is useless. They don't see any benefit. But it's really because they're not meditating. Their minds are not fixed or focused. and They're, they're not paying attention to themselves. They're constantly paying attention to the other people in the room, either through conversation, through watching, through uh, whatever connection. Some people even use telephones and contacting the outside world. This is very dangerous. And if we can't cut these, these things off, it's difficult to see that we're going to actually progress in the Buddhist teaching. So here was this monk, he came up with, he, he realized this. And this was the third thing that he realized. The fourth thing he realized was that this, this teaching is for people who are energetic, not people who are lazy. So this is very important for meditators as well. We, we, we can see fairly clearly, even in the beginning, that most of us have lazy tendencies. We tend to have difficulty when we can't sleep long hours, and we have difficulty bringing ourselves again and again to have to walk and sit and walk and sit. We want to take breaks and so on. Uh, we want to lie down during the day. We want to sleep many hours and so on. But if we're not energetic, we can see that also that the 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 meditation practice is, is, is it's very difficult for it to have any effect over us. If we sleep a lot, sleep during the day, uh, we find ourselves sluggish and we find ourselves unable, unable to make this continuous mindfulness and to you know, 
keep going uphill, keep progressing, keep developing in the meditation practice. We find we're unable to really practice when we walk or when we sit. We find our minds becoming distracted because we don't set ourselves to the task. We don't have this, this level of energy which is required to keep the mind with the object. We find ourselves looking here, looking there when we walk. When we sit, we find ourselves moving and so on, or nodding and falling asleep and not really paying attention. So this is one thing that we have to really work on in the practice. We have to have the energy, the effort to keep ourselves with the object again and again because it's really, what you can see is it's really not something that uh, that accumulates. It's not like concentration where as you practice more and more you become more, more focused. Mindfulness is something you have to create every moment. It's not like you're mindful for a few moments and then that's going to carry on into the next moments. It really doesn't work that way. Uh, in, until you can ch change the way you look at things so that you're actually seeing things simply for as they are, you're going to always go back to this state of unmindfulness, of following after things. And it, you don't, it's not this feeling, some people get caught up in this feeling of increased concentration. But mindfulness doesn't increase, it just is or it isn't. Either you're mindful or you're not. There's no more mindful, less mindful. It's not like concentration. Uh, so this, this is why the, the necessity of a very um, different type of effort, where you're always alert and reminding yourself and bringing yourself back again and again. It's very difficult, actually. You can find yourself mindful for a short time and then easily get off track. So this is one of the very important uh, things that this Anuruddha realized as he was sitting in meditation. The fifth thing that he realized was that this, this practice, this teaching is for those people who are mindful, not for those people who are unmindful. Well, this goes hand in hand with the last one. The energy that we're, the effort that we're looking for is the effort to be mindful. So uh, this mean this obviously means the same thing that you have to be mindful when we're practicing. Your mind has to be very clear, very alert, very established. Um, you know, if your if your mind is uh, following after conditions or floating here and there, this is no good. At the moment when your belly is rising, your mind has to know very clearly that this is rising. When the belly is falling, you have to know that this is falling. A little bit on what is mindfulness is also very helpful because the word mindfulness, of course, is not a direct translation. A more direct translation is recollection or remembrance, something to do with memory, the ability to remember. This is mindfulness. If you want a sati, if you want a good translation, the trans good translation is the ability to remember or remembrance or recollection. And this is borne out by the texts, which say very clearly that um, good mindfulness is marked by the ability to remember things that happened in the past. No matter how long ago it was, you can still remember. People will say, uh, oh, do you remember this? And you'll be able to tell them exactly what happened. If people you know, start talking about the past, you'll be able to say, no, no, it was like this, like this, like this. And they're amazed at how, how clear, the, clear it is in your mind. And this is the ability to recall, the ability to send the mind to something and catch the, the truth about it. But this, th this is one type of mindfulness, and this is really not very useful in the meditation practice because that doesn't tell you anything about the reality which we're experiencing. Our, 
awareness of the past, of course, is a very different type of awareness from our awareness of the present, because the past is all conceptual. We could make it up. We could start thinking of, yeah, it was like this, but then we could say, no, no, let's change that, and let's say it was like this, and then suddenly we've got a new memory. So we can, we can alter it. In this sense, it's impossible to see it for what it is. It's impossible to have it tell us something uh, very meaningful. We can't look at the past and say, that's, oh, that was impermanent. Yeah, that was rising and ceasing. Um, it depends on our, our awareness in the present moment at that time. So what we're talking about in meditation practice is remembrance of the present moment, remembering it for what it is. So when, when, when the belly rises, the ability to remember it as rising, not to think of it as good or as bad, or let our minds wander, letting our minds um, drift, follow after it. And this comes up later in the, at, at the end of this, this, uh, this discussion. And I'll go into this a little bit later, but having the mind stay with the object and know it simply for what it is, not making more of it than it is. This is the meaning of the word mindfulness. So if we're, when we're unable to do this, when the mind wanders, when the mind follows after conditions and enjoys them or, or is uh, disturbed by them, this is, this is a sign of lack of mindfulness. And this is not... Um, this is dangerous. This is not conducive to the meditation practice. So it's very important that we are able to be mindful. And if we expect to progress in the practice, it's necessary for us to be mindful. This is what Anuruddha realized as the fifth Mahapurisavitaka. The sixth was what he realized was that, yes, indeed, you need concentration. That one has to be focused. And we can't let our minds wander. We can't be someone who... Um, who is unable to stay fixed and focused, is unable to walk and keep the mind with the foot, is unable to sit and keep the mind with the stomach, for instance, or with any particular object. If we're not focused, if we're distracted, you know, many people come to practice meditation and their minds are so distracted that they, they can't understand why meditation is a good thing because they're sitting there and their minds are just flying all over the place. They think it's a product of the meditation. The truth is they've just never looked at their own mind and if, if, some, if you watch them in daily life they're actually much worse when they're not walking or sitting. But these people have a difficulty in the meditation practice and it doesn't mean that they can't practice, it just means that they have to uh, train themselves. We have to adjust ourselves in all of these things. If we're lazy we have to become effortful. If we have uh, many wants, we have to give up our wants. This is one of the most important first steps in meditation practice, is to give up all of our attachments, at least insofar as we're able to. To start to say to ourselves that this is not really as important as I think it is. And say to, my, say to yourself, I sacrifice this, I let it go. And when we're able to do this, this is um, an incredible help, benefit for our practice, and so on. So all of these things that I've been discussing up into the, this number six, which is concentration. A person who expects to gain benefit from the meditation practice has to be focused. They have to, they have to have the mind with the present moment at all times. They have to be focused on the present moment. It doesn't mean we have to be focused on a certain object at all times. This is a different type of concentration. Because here in the present moment, what we realize is there's no object that lasts longer than a moment. 
So if we're going to be focused, we have in the present moment, we have to be focused on each individual object, simply knowing it for what it is, not seeing it as something else, or not, <coughs> not uh, letting ourselves follow after it. This is number six. The seventh and final thing which he thought about was that this, this practice or this teaching is for those people who are wise, not those people who are unwise. And there's something here to the idea that um, even before you start practicing, you need an element of wisdom. You need some sort of wisdom before you can even start practicing. I think this goes without saying that people who, who don't have this, this rudimentary level of wisdom find it very hard to even appreciate the meditation teaching. Now, these are the type of people who, when they hear about meditation, they say, what, sitting still for... For an hour, what a useless thing to do. Walking and sitting for days on end, I mean, what a waste of your life. You know, these are sort of people who don't yet get it, who don't yet see the suffering which they're creating for themselves, which they're building up in their daily lives, in their pursuit after sensual pleasures and so on. Their pursuit after whatever, wanting to be rich, wanting to be famous, wanting to be this or that. Whatever people have in their mind, wanting to be productive or um, often just wanting to follow after the footsteps of their their ancestors you know, doing what everybody else did getting going to school getting a job getting old sick and dying and they think this is so important that that nothing should get get in the way and you can't imagine you know wasting your time doing something else like just sitting there you have to see clearer the, clearly that this sort of life, or this sort of way of looking at life, is is really dangerous. Is actually a cause for uh, suffering, and um, is a, is a cause for us to get lost. Is actually a, a sort of a useless way of living. You know, you you get you go to school to get a job. You get a job to get uh, money. By the time you got money, you're old, and then it, you get old, sick, and die. Uh, it, it it really has no meaning. That's what's useless. That's what's a waste of time. And we we start to think about things like suffering. We start to th think about things like old age, sickness, and death. But even just this sort of level of suffering which exists, which is uh, so pervasive in in our everyday lives, that we have to meet with so many unpleasant things. You have to be able to see that this is. Um, that this is the most important aspect of reality and the most important subject for our attention in order to appreciate the meditation because the meditation is looking deeply at the present experience. It's not trying to gain something for the future. So if you don't have this understanding of, of the importance in looking at the present moment or in, in changing yourself, in making yourself a better person, in training the mind, if you're not able to see the problems that exist in your mind, or the problem with clinging, or the problem with sensual uh, indulgence or overindulgence, then it's very difficult to come to practice meditation. But another way of looking at this is simply that this meditation requires one to uh, develop wisdom. You know, we don't just sit here just to feel happy, just to feel comfortable. 
Some people are able to do that. They're able to sit for long periods of time simply feeling peaceful and calm. And we have many meditation techniques all over the world that teach simply this. We have um, they call transcendental meditation or, or however. Meditations that make you feel peaceful and calm or lead you to some nice state of being. But in, in the teaching of the Lord Buddha, this is not um, conducive to the, the, the fruit of the practice, or this is not the way which we're trying to proceed. You know, if we simply just sit there peaceful and calm all the time, we never learn the things that are necessary for us to learn to attain the goal of Buddha's teaching, which is to let go, to become free. You know, to never have anger, greed, or delusion arise again. And the way that we have these things never arise again is not simply through focusing the mind, it's through realization. Realization that all of these things are, um, are dangerous, are un a cause of suffering, and so on. And this realization, this is what we call wisdom. So it's, it's the most important part of the Buddha's teaching, really, is, is wisdom. And if we if we practice to the extent of getting concentration, getting focused, but we don't yet understand, you know, we don't yet see the things in front of us as impermanent suffering and non-self, then we can never lead to the the consummation of the Buddhist teaching, which is vimutti, which is uh, freedom or release. And so this is the realization which Anuruddha came up with. Once he thought of, sat there, thinking about uh, thinking about these seven things. Um, they say the Lord Buddha was able to read his mind and knew what he was thinking about. Um, this is a common sort of uh, ability of those people who practice meditation you know, all of their lives and never leave the forest and so on. When, when you practice for a long time, if you, if you were to uh, live in a cave for years and years and years, you could eventually get your mind becomes so... Uh, subtle that you're able to appreciate the vibrations around you to the extent that you can read people's minds and this is what they say about many of even the Buddha and many of his disciples and you can even find these people nowadays I've heard about monks who um, they're sitting giving a talk and one of the students there was a story about a monk one of the students looked at the teacher and said boy he looked or said to themselves thought to themselves boy our teacher looks just like a fish and the teacher was, was sitting there and he's giving the talk and he says, you know, suppose there was someone who was, was sitting there and thought their teacher looked just like a fish. <laughs> he used it as an example. The student was like, oh boy. And they, they, they realized the teacher was, was, could tell what they were thinking. Uh, this you get sometimes. But uh, it, isn't, it isn't like it's necessary to read people's minds to be a teacher and it's not really difficult to understand how it happens because most of us have this ability to some extent anyway. You know, even when we look at someone's face, we can tell what they're thinking to some extent. When we look at their body language, we might be sitting there and suddenly they fidget. Or so you can read their, you can read things from people's body language. This is sort of the same, same sort of idea, except it's on a much deeper level, to the point where you can catch even even a thought process. At any rate, the Buddha, of course, was was perfectly developed in this, and so he came to Anuruddha, and and he, he wasn't going to let him get off the hook just with these seven, and he added an eighth. And it's quite interesting that he did so. 
you sort of wonder whether it was just kind of saying, you know, hey, stop thinking. It's not stop sitting there thinking. This isn't the way to practice because Anuruddha was obviously sitting there ruminating over this for some time and the Lord Buddha gave him the eighth one and he said, great, good for you. These seven things are, are, are correct. They're very well said. But I got an eighth one for you. And he said, number eight is that this Dhamma is for people who uh, delight in non-diversification, not those people who delight in diversification. Now, diversification here is a, just a translation. It's the only one that, that seems appropriate. Papancha is the, uh, the word. It refers to those states of mind which make more of something than it actually is. And this, of course, goes back to what I was saying earlier. That we often make more of some, or we, we ever and again make more of something than it actually is. I mean, simply saying that something is good or bad is making much more of it than it actually is. Uh, now, in this case, uh, Anuruddha, you know, as he was thinking, you know, there obviously arises many mind states because he's not really being mindful. He's sitting there, you know, formulating this this sort of system or this set of of, of ideas. And the Buddha gave him an eighth one. He said, you know, basically get back to practice. But it's, of course, the most important of all of these qualities. And, you know, all eight of these are, are incredible, are excellent guidelines. This isn't, it isn't to say that Anuruddha was in, in any way wrong. The Buddha just wanted to give him the, or so it seems, he just wanted to give him the, the, the tool that was necessary to get him back on track or to get him to the next level. Is that... Uh, above and beyond all of these things, the most important thing is that we don't make more of things than they actually are. So when we sit in meditation, whatever comes up, we simply realize it for what it is. And this is where people always get into trouble, especially near the end of the course. As they start to practice, they start to uh, interpret things. I know I was terrible about this when I first started. I had this feeling of a of a line in the middle of my body, and I started to think, yeah, that's the middle way that they're talking about. <laughs> so I was pushing myself to try to get to this very center of my body. And it's kind of a ridiculous to think about, but you get crazy as you go on in the practice. Uh, you know, you're just starting, you don't have, and nobody's giving you much uh, information, and you can attach and make so much more of things than they actually are. This is very common, especially as as we put you further and further into the into the practice and have you practice more and more. So this is the most important: is that we we, rem we realize that we remember things as we've uh, instructed the meditators. That when you see something, it's only seeing; when you hear something, it's only hearing; when you smell, it's only smelling; when you taste, it's only tasting. And there's no exceptions. Whatever you see, it's just simply seeing. Now it's funny how no matter how many times we impress this on people, there's always somebody, or or most people, will always come back and say. Oh, I, I think I, I realized it now. What was it? I saw this or I saw that. And, and you just think, you know, what have I been telling you this whole time? It's just a sight. It's not anything special whatsoever. Or they sit there and they feel some new feeling. And, you know, whatever you feel, it's just feeling. There, there's nothing special. This is what we're trying to realize. There's nothing special. There's nothing in this whole universe that's special. If you can't realize this, You've got, a, you, you, you've got a, a block in your practice and you will never be able to get to the core of the Buddha's teaching. So this is what is meant by papancha, nipapancha and papancha. Nipapancha means not making more of things than they actually are. If it's a feeling, it's a feeling. If it's a sight, it's a sight. 
it's a thought, it's a thought. Whatever you think, when you think to yourself, oh, this practice is terrible or it sucks or something, this is just a thought. If you think to yourself, you know, uh, here I am sitting, uh, one person said, here I am practicing meditation and it's supposed to be for the end of suffering and all I do is suffer more and more. And this is just, a th you know, th these thoughts that arise and we get caught up in this idea that, yeah, meditation must be bad because I'm suffering when I sit in meditation and I'm supposed to find, and we get all these logic circuits working and so on. And uh, if we're not careful, we can, we can really trick ourselves and get into this, you know, you know, sometimes I say something and, and, you know, people take it to mean more than it actually means and suddenly they're going, you know, like I say, there's teachers who can read people's minds and suddenly everybody thinks, oh, is he reading my mind? <laughs> oh, is he saying that because he can read my mind? Or so on. This is a, a very clear example. In fact, it's often often the case from what I've seen uh, even back in Thailand where, you know, one of our, our, our great teacher, he says something and everybody in the whole room thinks he's talking to them thinks he's read their mind and he's giving them some instruction. Every single person in the room. And it's, it's, it's really kind of humorous to see a room full of people with everybody thinking, yeah, he's talking to me. It actually does say something about his, his teaching ability that's true, but I don't really think he's, um, he's just going out and reading everybody's minds and giving them piece by piece information. Who knows, possibly. But I, do, I think more often than not we interpret things and make more of things than they actually are. And this is most important in the meditation practice. When you feel pain, it doesn't mean your leg is going to fall off. It doesn't mean that meditation practice is bad. It means something has arisen and it has the name pain. And if you don't get that, you'll never get through the Buddha's teaching. You'll never get to the core of the Buddha's teaching. If you can't get this simple truth, it is what it is. And so this is what we're practicing. And as we practice on and on, we slowly realize this. That's just what it is. It's pain. End of story. That's it. And this was this was the eighth um, item which the Lord Buddha gave to Anuruddha. And as a result, the end of the story is that Anuruddha, as a result, became uh, an arahant through this practice, through the practice of non-diversifying, not making more of things than they actually are. There's a little bit more in there. First, the Buddha goes back and tells all the other monks and explains it to them, explains these eight things to them, and goes into a little more detail. But I think I've covered it um, mo mostly. I don't think there's any need to go any further, and we've gone long enough now. So, I invite everyone to continue practicing. First, we do mindful prostration, then walking, and then sitting, and then we do a recording starting at three o'clock.